Nehemiah chapter 13, the first verse. This is God's holy word. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people. And there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Before this, Eliashib, the high priest, had put in charge of the storerooms, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room, formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, Why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah, the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms and made Hanon, son of Zachur, the son of Madaniah, their assistant, because these men were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their brothers. Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. In those days I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. Men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you're doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your forefathers do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity upon us and upon this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut 
and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, Why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. And from that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, O my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by God, and God made him king over all Israel, but even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Joyada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat, the Horonite. And I drove him away from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the, Levi the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favor, O oh my God. And may God remember us as we hear his word. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, the Apostle Paul wrote, If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. The Christian life is to be a life of constant watchfulness. Pride, presumption, smug self-satisfaction and self-reliance will always lead to a catastrophic end. But humble, praying, and watching 
with self-awareness of who we are and of God-reliance and of who He is is the only safe way forward. Because what we read about here in Nehemiah 13 was just not an issue or issues with the Old Testament people of God. This chapter stands before us this afternoon as a constant call to repentance in every age. Jesus wrote to the church in Ephesus, Revelation 2, verse 5, Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Jesus' first preaching was preaching repentance. In Nehemiah 13, is a chapter about repentance. It is a chapter that is as disappointing in one way as it is honest and realistic. But it is also a chapter that is as hopeful as it is helpful. In this chapter, we read about, first, a relapsing church. A relapsing church. And secondly, we read about a ruthless response. And lastly, we want to just focus on what is repeated throughout this chapter, a remembering God, a remembering God. Well, first, a relapsing church. We mentioned last time when we considered just that little portion of verse 2, our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. And we just looked at that theme as a a central theme of the work of God in Christ in the gospel. But we mentioned last time that chapter 13 here is connected to the time when Nehemiah left Jerusalem to return to the court of King Artaxerxes. And then, verse 6, sometime later, he returns to Jerusalem. And when he does... He finds the people of God sorely and sinfully relapsed into sin and disobedience. How disheartening this must have been for Nehemiah. When he first left Artaxerxes and went to Jerusalem, he found the walls were crumbling. But when he returned again on this occasion, the walls were standing, but the people themselves were crumbling. When Nehemiah was absent, there was a great relapse into sin. You know, we hope and pray as parents, maybe as employers, as leaders of different kinds and leaders in the church even, that the day will come when we don't always need to be standing over the shoulders of others. 
to make sure things go properly. Boys and girls, do mom and dad have to be there watching you clean your room? Or can you just do it? What happened so sadly when Nehemiah was away? It reminds us of when Moses was away. Remember, up on the mountain. And in his absence, as the King James Version puts it, the people rose up to play. And that's a euphemism. They quickly, we read in Exodus 32.8, they have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. A relapsed people. We might hope and pray for the time when we don't need oversight, but the truth is, in this life, we all need it. The office of overseer in the church is, boys and girls, what? A good work. That's a faithful saying. Jay Adams said, in the context of counseling in the church particularly, but it applies to all areas of life, I I think, people don't do what you expect. They do what you inspect. J.C. Ryle, in a sermon that still survives from his first charge in the village of Exbury, said to the people, do you think there would be much religion in Exbury if all the places of worship were pulled down, if all the ministers were withdrawn, and each was left to the care of his own soul? In a very few years, sin would abound and God would be almost forgotten. That's not flattering, but it's probably true. We need the church more than we realize. We need oversight in our lives more than sometimes we desire it. We distance ourselves from the church. We isolate ourselves to our spiritual harm. It seems here that it was Nehemiah's absence that was the occasion for this spiritual backsliding, this relapsing church. And the sin was worse because it followed a great revival. It was very careful. I didn't say this is a lapsing church. This is a relapsing church. Because you remember that previously under Nehemiah, Nehemiah 9.38, in view of all this, the people said, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. Nehemiah 10.29, all these now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. This is a relapsing church. 
They had been brought to repentance before and had bound themselves before God to obedience. And now they are falling again. It's sad, but history bears it out too often that great relapses in the church follow great revivals. Our adversary prowls around like a roaring lion. And we see here that the relapse occurs in three specific areas, don't we? The first is broadly the worship of God. Concern and commitment with respect to his house. They had pledged this before, Nehemiah 10.35. We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree. They had committed themselves to this before. Nehemiah 10.31 is about the Sabbath. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts, further Sabbath-type laws. And in Nehemiah 10.30, they made commitments regarding unholy marriages. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or to take their daughters for our sons. But what do we see in Nehemiah 13? Verse 11, Nehemiah says, Why is the house of God neglected? Verse 17, What is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath? And verse 23 and following, Men of Judah married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. There's so much that could be said about each one of these areas of the relapse of the people of God. In Nehemiah 13, just look briefly at some of it. Eliashed, boys and girls, let someone stay in the storerooms of the house of God. Now, you have to think about that and imagine it, because if it's a storeroom for things, why could someone stay there? How could someone stay there? What was supposed to be there wasn't there so that it allowed for the possibility of what wasn't supposed to be there to be there. It should have been filled with the articles for worship and for, with the tithes and offerings and provisions. But it was empty so that someone could move in. And not just anyone. Tobiah. Tobiah. And I hope we're not too distant, too far past the earlier chapters of Nehemiah to remember that name. One of the enemies of the people of God. You see what happened. Lack of attention to God's house allowed an enemy in. It gave room to an enemy. And there is here not just a a call, I think, to be faithful in our offerings to God as we don't neglect the worship of God. It's not just a call to be faithful in tithes and offerings, though it is, 
But there is a great spiritual principle here in general as well. Nature, you know, people say nature hates a vacuum. That's true spiritually as well. When the impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through the dry places seeking rest, doesn't find. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. If things are empty, there's an opportunity for what is not supposed to be there to come in. If your heart and your soul and your mind are empty, something will fill them. What's filling your mind? What is there or not there? That's why we must be careful to fill our minds with God's truth. Philippians 4.8, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. If our mind is vacated with respect to the word of God, it will be invaded by all sorts of things that shouldn't be there. That's true individually, and it's true as a church. We must be careful not to neglect the worship of God in any way, or we will soon find enemies within the walls of the church. Just move on to the Sabbath day here, verses 15 to 22. And as we look at these areas, and as these areas come to us here, this is what happens, so... These were the sins that the people relapsed into. Neglect for the worship of God, Sabbath days, unholy relationships in life. Those aren't just random, arbitrary things. Those are central things. They're not just insignificant areas in the lives of the people of God or of the church. These are central things. These are things that the devil knows are especially useful for him to gain entry into the church and to work destruction if he can. Neglect of the worship of God while here the Sabbath day. Worldly mindedness is always supplanted by God mindedness. The more God minded we are, as we heard this morning, the more godliness we have, the less worldliness there will be in our lives. And the Sabbath is particularly designed by God, calculated by God to instill godliness, God-mindedness in your life. All the days are his, but he says there's one day of seven that I am setting apart, I am blessing and setting it apart that in a special way you turn your minds and your hearts toward me. The other six days, we do our work, but it's easy to, to be taken up with those things, and to make those things idle, idols in our lives. So God has one day, a whole day, to encourage in us godliness and not worldliness. So it's a day when we don't work at our usual work to remind us that God is more important. 
I would say to you students, it's a day when you don't do your schoolwork or study. God's more important than you getting ahead in a course. Godliness, instilled by the Sabbath day, instilling us by God's grace a trust in God that he will provide, as long as we're doing work on the six days, gratitude to God for salvation and all the blessings of life, and a resting in God. But what did the people say? No. No. Amos 8, verse 5, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath ended that we may market wheat? We don't want a Sabbath day. We want to get back to work, back to business, back to our real lives. The devil's attack, he attacks the Sabbath. The devil's attack on the Sabbath is so clear and so concerted that he has inspired in our day whole sections of the professing evangelical church to live by nine commandments and not ten. To say that somehow the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, is fulfilled in Christ and so not applicable to us. Well, the sixth commandment is fulfilled by Christ. You shall not kill. You shall not murder. Christ righteously fulfilled it, and he died for the sins that it condemns. He's fulfilled the sixth commandment. Do we say you shall not murder is no longer applicable? What kind of thinking is that? All of the law is fulfilled in Christ for us. And all of it is our rule for thankful living including a Sabbath day. It's a blessing to have a Sabbath day. God blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Or what are we really saying? God, I have too much of your blessing, so I don't need a Sabbath day. Anyone here that has too much of God's blessing in their life? God bless the Sabbath day. Don't say no to a Sabbath day. The Sabbath was made for man. And Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. And he gives it to you as a day of rest and worship and fellowship with his people. But the devil hates it. We should love it. And then marriages, of course, verses 23 to 28. We considered this earlier on in Nehemiah. No Moabite or Ammonite was to be admitted into the people of God, verse 1 and verse 23. And that sense is, of course, they they were not to be admitted as they were, as enemies of God. But one writer said, but let him be a convert in cases like Ruth the Moabitess, and he or she will be entitled to a very different reception. This isn't some kind of racism. This has a spiritual intent for the purity and the preservation of the people of God. 
We need to be aware, as one commentator said, of the son or daughter of a foreign god burrowing into the life and language of Israel. Marrying outside the church, marrying outside the people of God, a professing Christian marrying an unbeliever is what this is getting at. 1 Corinthians 7, if you marry, it must be in the Lord. And the sad effects are are just mentioned here. I just highlight the one thing, that these uh, children of these marriages spoke the language of Ashdod and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. And that was true of real languages in that day, but it's true in the church as well. That with these sorts of unholy relationships and marriages, what happens? More and more people start talking the language of the world. You you just start talking like the world talks. And more and more, you lose the ability to speak and even more experience the language of Scripture, of the gospel. I've seen this close up. And personally, when people have been in a place where they've been okay with these sorts of unbiblical, unholy relationships and marriages, and you see it being worked out eventually, you even go to those people to say nothing of their children. And you say, tell me about the new birth. Talk to me about the new birth. Tell me about repentance unto life. And saving faith. Huh? Huh? They don't even know how to speak the language of Judah anymore. It wasn't important to them. They're not digging into it. They're not learning. Other things are more important to them. And why? I just think he's really cute. Yeah, I know you laugh. He's so handsome. Is he a believer? Well, no. But I'm praying he'll be converted. Shall we sin that grace may abound? By no means. But she's so nice. We just get along so well. Yeah, you probably do. But why is that? How is that? What are you compromising in your life that you can get along so well with an unbeliever? Maybe you're not unequally yoked. Well, that's what I usually see. And I don't know people's hearts, I'm not saying that. But when you see it worked out, that's what shows up often. Well, you weren't unequally yoked after all. One marriage is singled out here. The son of Joyada. It's in verse 28. One of the sons of Joyada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite. Isn't that something? The grandson of Eliashib. 
married the son, married the daughter of Sanballat, one of the enemies again from the earlier chapters. You can't help but think, just a little sire, the influence that we have on other people and the consequences of our actions. The grandson of Eliashib. And we read earlier, Eliashib, who had himself been closely associated with Tobiah. What are our grandchildren seeing and hearing and learning from us? I could see the son of Jodiah saying, well... Granddad is friends with Tobiah. Why can't I marry Sanballat's daughter? What are our children and our grandchildren seeing and hearing and learning from us? Well, this is such a sinful relapse. It's another one of those how-could-they cases in Scripture. But Jesus spoke about logs before specks. Have you made promises or commitments? Have you taken vows? I think almost all of us here have. Maybe you're a young person and you say, well, my parents took a vow. I didn't take a vow. I was baptized as an infant. God's sign is on you. In his providence, he put you into the visible church. And that comes with great blessing, but great responsibility and obligation. You are engaged to be the Lord's in a special way. There are obligations upon you by virtue of your baptism. Have we made promises, commitments, vows? Well, the next question is, have you kept them perfectly? Have I? How is our commitment to worship? How is our Sabbath keeping? How are our relationships in the world? Of course, we're in the world. We're salt and light. We have relationships with unbelievers. It's inevitable. We, we should. But not covenanted relationships. Not deep, intimate relationships. What fellowship has light with darkness? And beloved, as you think about these things, don't just check off the boxes in an external way. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, what about your heart? And what about your mind? The worship of God, the Sabbath day, unholy alliances or relationships. You don't need to marry an unbeliever to break the seventh commandment. You can be married to a fine, godly Christian spouse and break the seventh commandment in lots of ways. You can be someone who never misses a worship service. You're here every Lord's Day twice. And you may not be keeping the Sabbath day holy. Because already tonight, you're thinking about what's going to be happening tomorrow morning at work or at home.
Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. We've got too much here for this afternoon. A relapsing church. But what does God say? It was our call to worship, if you remember. Jeremiah chapter 4. If you will return, O Israel, return to me, declares the Lord. If you put your detestable idols out of my sight and no longer go astray, and if in a truthful, just, and righteous way you swear as surely as the Lord lives, then the nations will be blessed by him, and in him they will glory. In repentance and rest is your salvation. And Jesus said, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and you'll find rest for your souls.